for a crime that you did not commit? How would you feel if you had to pay for a crime that you didn't commit? Second question, how would you feel if you received a pardon you didn't earn? Hollywood is rife, has a lot of movies that are uh, covering these kind of two themes. In the 1994 film Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne is arrested for a crime he didn't commit and spends some 40 years in prison. And we find out pretty close to the beginning of the movie that he did not commit that crime, and he's in a maximum security of prison, and he undergoes incredible difficulty in that prison. He also makes good use of the time, and then he eventually is released. And throughout that whole movie, we are able to identify with a man who had to pay for a crime that he never committed. I recently read in the paper as well, a person who had recently spent five years for murder in prison for a crime that they didn't commit, and they were tempted to make him stay over a few more days for bad behavior. And the people who were responding on this website about this atrocity were like, we have so much to owe this man for keeping him in prison for five years. Let the guy go, regardless of his bad behavior. So it is an outrage, even in our own society, for people paying for crimes that they never did. But how would you feel if you received a pardon you didn't earn? In the movie Radio, a couple of years ago, came out with Ed Harris and Cuba Gooding Jr. Ed Harris plays a football coach in the South who takes in a young guy who is mentally handicapped and difficult to be around. He's kind of the town recluse. And he takes him onto the football team and begins to treat him as like an assistant coach. Well, the members on the team begin to make fun of him over and over again. And at one point in the movie, one of the star players plays a prank on him. He has him go into the girls' locker room, which he's not supposed to do, and he comes out very scared and knows that he's in trouble. And he, the coach confronts him about going into the girls' locker room. There, there's a scene in the movie where he's sitting there on the bleachers, and the coach is standing there talking to him and says, what has happened? Tell me what happened. Who did this to you? And all he can say over and over again is no, no. The coach continues to press him on it. Listen, radio, you need to tell me who did this to you. And he says, be mad at radio. What he's doing in that scene is paying for a crime he never committed, and he's also giving the guy who did it a pardon he never earned. And, in fact, that's what endears the guy who did it to him all along. And Johnny, the man who did it, eventually becomes one of his closest friends by the end of the movie because he was willing to do that. And the coach responds to this whole situation by saying, you're really willing to do that? You're willing to take another person's place and pay for their crimes? And he said, you're a better man than me, was his response to radio. Well, this morning, as we gaze into Mark 14 and 15, we get to see both of these scenarios get played out, except the two situations are actually closely related and inseparably necessary from one another. Because Jesus pays for crimes he did not commit in order that we might receive a pardon that we didn't earn. He is innocent. We are guilty. And in and through his work on the cross, his innocence gets exchanged for our guilt. Three points this morning to this morning's message. 
First point, the innocent. We're going to look at verses 53 to 65 and see the initial trial that Jesus undergoes with the Jewish law court. And we're going to see Jesus' innocence. Then we're going to see Peter's denial. Second point is guilt. So we see the innocent first with Jesus, and then we're going to see the guilty with Peter. And then the last scene, we come to Jesus appearing before Pilate, and we see the innocent getting exchanged for the guilty. So point number one, the innocent, verses 53 to 65. Now the leaders of the Jews have arrested Jesus, and they want to kill him. However, the Jews have no right to kill him because the Romans rule the country. So now the Jews have to find Jesus guilty of doing something wrong. They must show the Roman ruler, Pilate, that Jesus should be put to death. But the problem is, they can't find anything wrong with Jesus. We notice that right in verse 55. Look there again. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were searching, searching, searching for testimony to put Jesus to death, and they could not find anything. More than that, his life was so beautiful, so perfect, that they even tried to make up charges. But the people who were making up charges were saying different things. Notice verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they tried to get false witnesses to come forward and say he did things that he didn't do, but they couldn't even get guys to agree with him on what he did wrong. They were saying different things. And some stood up, verse 57, and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say this, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days... I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus, did Jesus say that? Yes, he said that. But that is no crime. Did he actually destroy the temple? No. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree, verse 59 says. So this is a strange situation. They have seized an innocent man, taken him before the highest court in the Jewish faith, and cannot find anything wrong with him. His life is so beautiful, so perfect. Every thought is pleasing to God. Every deed is pleasing to God. Every word is pleasing to God. And the Bible confirms this in other places as well, the innocence of Christ. One of the verses we read this morning in Isaiah 53. But listen to Jesus' own testimony about his innocence in, in the Gospel of John. In, chapter, in John 8.46, Jesus says this, which one of you convicts me of sin? He can look at a whole crowd of people and say, which one of you would say that I have sinned once? That there is anything that I have done wrong? And no one responded in John 8. John chapter 14. I will no longer talk much of you, Jesus says, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's referring to Satan. He has no claim on me. He, he says to Jesus, Jesus says to, can say in the face of Satan, there is not one sin that you can lay claim that I have committed. Not one. John chapter 15, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Quote, they hated me without a cause. There was not a cause for their hatred. John 18, verse 23. Jesus answered him, 
If what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? They could not bear witness about what was wrong. There's also the testimony not only of Jesus, but of those who loved him. Peter, who is going to go on to deny him in this very passage, says this about Jesus in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ we were redeemed, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is a spotless lamb without blemish. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter goes on to say, He committed no sin. There's the clearest text. 1 John 3, 5, John, his apostle, says, In him there is no sin. The writer to the Hebrews says that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 describes Jesus as holy, innocent, unstained. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28 says that God has appointed a son whom has been made perfect forever. So we see this over and over again, the absolute innocence and sinlessness of Christ. The leaders are literally groping to find something for which to condemn him. The entire situation is a gross violation of the rules for capital cases described in the Mishnah. We've talked about the Mishnah a lot as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark. The Mishnah was that code of conduct that the Jews were supposed to follow, and they are breaking it over and over again. They're short-circuiting the procedures, they're bypassing the law, and they're doing it for one reason. They want to expedite Jesus' execution as fast as possible. They want him dead, and they want him dead fast. If it meant breaking the law to get it done, so be it. The irony of this situation is just striking, isn't it? How ironic this entire passage is. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council that Jesus is standing in front of, stands on the law. They're supposed to uphold the law, defend the law, preserve the law, and here is Jesus in the dock. But it's Jesus who, in fact, is truly upholding the law, and it's the Sanhedrin who's breaking it. Also, the testimony that the Sanhedrin give, are you God's Son? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? That testimony is ultimately not provided by the false witnesses, but it comes from Jesus' own lips. The false wit they're trying to get false witnesses to bear the fact that he is the Christ. And how ironic, he just says it. Yes, I am. Jesus stands on trial before these men, and Jesus says in this passage, these men will one day stand on trial before him. Isn't that what he says in verse 62? I am. I am the Christ. And you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The judge is being judged, and one day the judge is going to turn the tables. The Sanhedrin mocks Jesus' ability to prophesy, right? We see that in verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the whole point is, he is the whole time, and everything that he says is going to come true. They're mocking him for the very things that are true. All of his prophecies come true. And notice this. Who's the one who's really guilty of blasphemy here? Is it Jesus claiming to be God's son? 
Or is it them who are committing blasphemy by denying that he's God's son? The whole situation declares that Jesus is absolutely innocent of the crimes that he is being charged with. The innocence of Christ is on display. Second point, the guilty. We not only see the innocence of Christ as he stands before his crowd, but we see the guilt of Peter as he stands before his crowd of one. Now, notice what Peter is doing. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Now, remember last week, Jesus predicted that all of them would fall away. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. And then Judas comes, betrays him. There's an outbreak of violence, and all of them flee, including Peter. But while other, others might have ran for the city limits... Peter sticks close enough to follow him. He's at a distance. He's walking the whole time, but he knows where Jesus has been taken, and he's standing outside looking in. He's in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest, who's probably 11 or 13 years old, seeing Peter warming himself, looked at him and said, so it's nighttime, it's cool, standing by a fire, and she says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. I remember you. You used to walk through this village with him. You were, in fact, one of the guys he seemed to talk to the most and put forward in a lot of situations. I know you. I recognize you. Verse 68, but he denies it. Here's the contrast. Jesus, standing before a large crowd that can condemn him to death, tells the absolute truth the whole time. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. Peter, standing before one little girl, confronted with whether or not he's a disciple of Jesus Christ, says, no, he lies. She goes on. And the servant girl saw him, verse 69, and began again to say to the bystanders, hey, hey, this, this, hey, this, he's one of them. So the crowd's beginning to gather a little bit. Verse 70, but again... Peter denies it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Yeah, yeah, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. I, I, I recognize you. You're from Galilee. Verse 71, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter is literally going out of his mind now. He's like, Would you stop it? I'm not one of his. I'd never know the guy. I don't even know who that is over there. Stop it. May I be cursed by God if he if I know him. I swear I'm not one of his disciples. I don't even know the guy. And then the situation which Jesus prophesied in Mark 14, which we saw last week that before here's the man who said that he would die before he deny Christ wilting in the face of the most minor opposition compared to what his master and savior was undergoing at that very moment. And in verse 72, we read the conclusion. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, why did Peter say he did not know Jesus? 
Obviously, he was afraid. But what was he afraid of? What he might receive from the hands of people? What might come back to him as a result of what what might happen to Jesus? When do we try to hide what we think about Jesus? In the end, Peter cursed and swore to show that he did not know Jesus. What have you done to hide your love for Jesus? Why did Peter cry? We saw that at the end of the passage, right? He broke down and he wept. Why did he cry? Well, he had been a proud man for one. I mean, how the mighty have fallen here. He really put, set himself up for this one because he said that he would rather die before he denied Christ. And here we see him at the very moment when it's most tested right there at the most simple opportunity. This is not a girl with a gun. He denies. So he had been proud. He would not listened to Jesus. He would not listened to Jesus' warnings. And he'd been ashamed of the one that he loved. He had been ashamed of the one he loved. Have you ever cried because you made Jesus or you disappointed Jesus? We read in Luke's account of verse 22, uh, of chapter 22 of Luke, the same account, that what induced this weeping, what caused this weeping to happen, was the fact that Luke records, Luke's great at the details, Mark doesn't hit those all the time, but Luke says that Jesus' eyes met Peter at the sound of that second rooster crow. I mean, Matt, you can put yourself there, right, in that situation. You can feel that. This is more real than any movie. Picture yourself there. You've just seen what the one that you have loved, the one whom you've loved and followed for three years You've seen him inside and out, and you see the treatment that he receives unjustly. And in that very moment, you see how far you are from him. This perfect, beautiful, spotless life that maintains its integrity through fire meets the eyes of this imperfect, weak, frail, broken, dirty life that wilts under the least persecution. The only reason that you wouldn't cry, we've all been there. We've all been, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know what it's like to wilt before people in the face of their mockery of Jesus or the fact that you don't want to be identified with him. But the only reason that we would not cry is if the opinions of others matter more to us than the opinion of Christ. Or are you still so worried about what other people think of you compared to what Jesus thinks? Commentator James Edwards says the following. He says, Peter's example is a warning to disciples then and now that faithful witness to Jesus, listen to this, faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. It is in everyday matters that disciples are true martyrs. Do you get what he's saying? It's in everyday matters that we are martyred for Christ. It's not the, 
the word martyr, where we get the word martyr, comes from the Greek word to bear witness, to be a witness to someone, for someone, to identify with them that you are with them, that you are on their side. And what Edwards is saying here is it is in those routine, run-of-the-mill, daily things that we are going through that our faithfulness as disciples is really proven. It's not the standing, you know, like reading in Voice of the Martyrs magazine about these Christians or even the Christians who were in Afghanistan suffering literal martyrdom for the cause of Christ, dying for the cause of Christ. No one gets to that point, usually, who has not already been martyred in their spirit. They've already renounced all to follow Christ. So we see here that Peter's Peter's example is a warning to us to not to not think of that if it's the same thing that that we can think about with King David. You know, King David is described as a man after God's own heart. And when we see his tragic fall in the Old Testament into adultery and murder, we think, wow, if he can fall into that, anybody can fall. It's the same way with Peter here. If the closest disciple who walked with him, who was his right-hand man, who was entrusted with the stewardship of his church after he left the earth, if he can fall in the face of something like this, what makes us think we're not going to do the same? Like Peter, we all have failed Jesus. We have chosen to watch Jesus from a safe distance rather than get up right next to him in costly obedience. We are all so weak and afraid at times, and this is why Jesus is going to the cross. This is why when Jesus meets the eyes of Peter and sees him deny him, that he doesn't turn back from the cross, but he continues on his way to the cross. Because he knows that that sin will have to be paid for too if Peter is ever going to be reconciled to God. So Jesus is going to the cross to die for weak people who cannot save themselves. Jesus watched Peter fail. And Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail. But he also knew that his death is going to pay the price for Peter's sin. And this is what we see prefigured in the next scene and where we'll spend most of our time today. So that was point number two, the guilty. So we've seen the innocent Christ. We've seen the guilty Peter. And now we see the exchange, the innocent exchanged for the guilty. Notice with me chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So they finally had a case to bring before the Roman ruler now, they, at least they think. And so they bring him before Pilate. Verse 2, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so which is neither an affirmation nor a denial. Because Jesus doesn't want to affirm it because he's, Pilate doesn't have any clue what he's saying. If he says, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, Pilate has all kinds of thoughts about what that means that are totally untrue of Jesus. So what Jesus is saying by this little phrase, you have said so, is you better give that some more thought about what you just said. Think about that for a second. Think about that. I'm the Messiah who has come for the Jewish people. And Pilate may not know anything about that. He knows enough about Jewish faith 
to know that they had been looking for some sort of ruler for a time period. But keep in mind, his affairs are mostly concerned with Rome. He's not too concerned about this little Jewish squabble. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things, so they didn't just say, yeah, he, yeah, he's that, and he's all this other stuff too. He's really bad. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make to all these charges that they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was really amazed. It's like, you're not going to defend yourself? You're just going to sit there and wow, better man than me. Verse 6, and now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, notice this. Rebels in prison who had committed murder. There was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask him to do as he usually did for them, which was release a prisoner. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Now, we're not exactly sure all that's going on in Pilate's mind here, but I think it's pretty safe to say that he went and got a really wicked guy and pulled him forward and said, Listen, who do you want me to release? He thought that he could get Jesus off the hook here. He's thinking, This, this is a ridiculous situation. Let me put this obviously wicked murderer in front of you. You want him roaming your, sit roaming your streets again? Or this Jesus roaming your streets again? He's thinking it's a, it's a, this is an easy situation. They're going to pick Jesus. I mean, he's not a murderer. But they don't. They don't. Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So the chief priests are all looking around at the crowd saying, are you really going to let this happen? Are you going to let this man go who has said these things, who has done these things? And he's, they're, he's, they're stirring up the crowd. And no doubt using a bit of leverage probably. You know what happens if you go against the chief priests? You're breaking the law. So these chief priests are turning around to these fellow Jews and others and saying, listen, we hear what you say. If you don't go along with this, you'll appear before us too. And they're using some leverage there to get what they want. Verse 12, Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Now, this is strange, isn't it? Who's the governor here? Who's running the show? He's asking them what they want? But I thought you were the ruler. Just the irony of the whole situation. Verse 13, and they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there's his motive, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Maybe a word about scourging. We're going to hear about the cross all next week, and we need to pray for Jonathan. Because you don't get any more intimidated as a preacher than when you have to 
describe the cross to people. <laughs> and um, But Jesus was scourged. Scourging involved... Most people didn't even survive the scourging who were going to be crucified. Um, scourging was intended to soften up the victim so that the crucifixion would not last as long. It was intended to make them bleed as much as possible so that when they hung on the cross and they actually died of asphyxiation, of not being able to breathe, that it would actually weaken them to the point that they couldn't pull themselves up on the cross anymore and breathe. So the scourging was intended to get them to bleed, get them to suffer, get them in pain, so that they, when they got to the cross, they don't even have any more energy anymore to lift themselves up and they're going to die fairly quickly. Well, what was scourging? Well, scourging was the use of Jesus was tied, would have probably been tied to a pole three, four feet off the ground, tied with his hands, shredded, his back was open, naked before the Roman um, executioners, and using bits of glass, bone, metal, tied to a rope, would begin whipping him. The, the whip would get snagged into the flesh, and he would pull back and tug and tear through the muscles and tendons in the back of Jesus. And the goal was that he would suffer, bleed, and they did this prior to him being delivered to be crucified. So that's a word about, about scourging. But what we notice here is, again, the innocence of Christ contrasted with someone who is exceedingly guilty, someone who has committed murder, Now, how does all this apply to us in our situation? This account of Jesus standing before Pilate and the exchange of Barabbas, the criminal, for the innocent Christ is a picture of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. It's a picture of what the cross means. It's a human story. It's a parable of what is actually going to happen on the cross. Because what the cross is all about is exchange. Jesus is innocent. We are not. Jesus is dying for our sin. It was as if the whole world put Jesus on the cross, isn't it? It's not just Pilate. It's not just the Jewish leaders. It's the ordinary people who are all giving their consent. Are you really any different? Am I really any different? They chose Barabbas, not Jesus. Why did they choose Barabbas and not Jesus? Well, clearly, because they loved evil more than they loved good. They looked at evil and said, yes, we want that. They looked at good and said, no, we do not want that. Are we any better when we choose sin over obedience? Are we any better? Are we not inwardly shouting, crucify him, when we choose sin? When we push him away? Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't want Jesus because you don't want to change. Well, neither did these people. Keeping Jesus around meant changing. That's not, I'm not interested in that. So I'd rather kill him 
than change because of him. We're exactly the same way. In fact, we were singing the song this morning, and I love I love the Lamb of God song, but it struck me, I guess, freshly this morning when we were singing, I think the second verse, when it says, Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. And I'm, I'm singing that back there, and I said, God, I did it too! It wasn't just them. I did it. I was there. I joined the mockery. I said, kill him. Get him out of my life. I don't want him. He wants me to change. No. See, we must see the cross as something done by us before we see the cross as something done for us. If you don't see it as done by you, you will never love him for still going to it. He did nothing wrong. Nothing. Yet he died in the place of bad people like Barabbas, like us. He had done nothing wrong, and yet we kill him on the cross. Barabbas had done nothing right. He's guilty, and he gets released. This is injustice. If you know the Scriptures well, when you see this happening, the first thing that should well up in your heart is not looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, He loves us. It's great. Isn't that great? What an example. What should well up in your heart when you look at the cross is, God, how can you do that? How can you do that? We are the most individualistic nation in the world. We believe that everybody should pay for the crimes that they commit, and no one should pay for the crimes that they didn't commit. And yet that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. We should, I mean, Proverbs. I was reading the book of Proverbs this week, and I came across this verse again. I think it's in chapter 14, where it says that he who condemns the righteous and acquits the guilty is an abomination to God. He who tells, says to the righteous, you're going to prison, you're going to die, and he who says to the guilty, you can go free, God says, he looks at that and says, that is absolutely wicked. And yet, how can he look at the cross and see Jesus exchanging his life dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, and not look down at that and say, that is wicked. That's, what we should re- that's the way we should respond to the cross. There is no way. We should look at the cross and say, there is no way that's right. That is not right. But yet, it's the truth of God. It's what the cross is all about. He's dying the innocent for the guilty so that we might be declared innocent before a holy God and released from the penalty our sins deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 captures it very, very neatly and concisely. He who knew no sin was made sin, treated as our sins deserve, on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. He died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's what the cross is all about. It's all about the righteousness for the unright the righteous for the unrighteous, the exchange of the innocent for the guilty. We we found this um, I found this incredibly precious because in the last couple of weeks we've gotten to finalize Judson's adoption. And those of you who know anything about international adoption, my son's too, he's from Ethiopia, for visitors who may not know. Uh, we finally got to adopt him, finalize his adoption, which means we got to go up here before the judge in Davis County and and uh, and Brad Rhodes was our attorney, if you know Brad. And um, it was just it was just a precious time because here we are, Katie and I, standing before the judge, and we've got Judson in our arms, and Brad's over here on our side. And and the judge, you know, speaks to Brad and says, "Brad, what do you have to say?" And that's, nobody's in the courtroom; it's just us, you know. And Brad turns and says, "Now, do you realize that when this adoption?" Now, as, we, as I appeal to the judge here to grant this adoption, that Judson will become your son as though he was naturally, biologically born into your family with all the rights and privileges that that entails. And Brad knows. Brad's speaking the gospel to me right at that moment. And, um, and I thought, that's what I, that's what Judson gets in our family, full rights, full privileges of, a son, of sonship, and we get that through the gospel in Christ. We get full rights, full sonship. We're not, there's, God only has one natural son, and he sent that natural son into the world to rescue all those who are rebels all those Barabbases in the world. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, we are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We should find in this passage more kinship with Barabbas than anybody else, and Peter. <laughs> those are our brothers. <laughs> I'm a brother of Peter, and I'm a brother of Barabbas. We're guilty, we're wicked, we're worthy of condemnation. Because no one, to the degree that God in heaven deserves, looks at our life and says, that person shows me more about God than anybody I've ever met in my life. You know, that was, that's our intention. That's our creation. That's our purpose for being. We're supposed to walk around everywhere and people are just, you can't get God off the mind when you're in, interacting with that person. It's not because they're always a holy roller and speaking it all the time. The way they live, their conduct, their words, their, their love just radiates God to people. They're just, they're just, they're holy, they're pure, they're loving, they're compassionate, they're merciful, they're gracious, they're patient, over and over again. And this is what we're meant to communicate. But I, I don't think Davis County knows us that way, though anyway, to the degree that God deserves. And so we are, we are guilty. We're worthy of condemnation because God put us here to display his greatness. And if anything, at best, we display a dim flicker of what he is. And by God's grace, that flicker is increasing 
and shining brighter and brighter in those who have been called to Christ, and it will one day be as bright as the noonday sun. But right now, it's just a whisper, and we, 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 we just groan because it's not more so. But let me continue with what Ryle said here. We're all by nature in the position of Barabbas. He says, we're guilty, wicked, and worthy of condemnation. But, listen to this, Ryle says, when we were without hope, Christ the innocent died for the ungodly. And now God, for Christ's sake, can be just and yet the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. That's why it's not an abomination. That's why when God looks down at the cross, it's not an abomination in his own eyes. It's not wicked because it's his love that motivated it in the first place. And he knew what he was doing. He was sending a representative. He was sending someone who would do what we failed to do, who would undo what we've done. And through faith in him, we could be made right. So that God could be both just in forgiving us, not like Pilate and acquitting Barabbas with no grounds. But God has total grounds for our acquittal now. Total grounds. He is absolutely just to forgive anyone who trusts in Jesus. Absolutely just. So we don't have to fear, is God somehow like, you know, playing a, is he kind of a, like an unjust judge? I mean, we wouldn't keep a judge on the bench in Davis County who did stuff like that. We wouldn't. Who just let rapists go, criminals go, whoever. And yet God does that over and over and over again, and he's just in doing it because Jesus absorbed the penalty for all of that. So Ryle concludes, let us bless God that we have such a glorious salvation set before us. Our plea must always be not that we, get this, get this, let this be the plea of our church forever and ever until we're in glory. And it'll be our, it'll be our plea in glory. Our plea must ever be not that we are deserving of acquittal, not that we're deserving of forgiveness, but that Christ has died for us. That's our plea. Not that we deserve forgiveness, but Christ deserves what he has purchased. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me, and believing in him, I have hope of heaven. May we never rest. Jesus, the just judge of all the earth, was unjustly judged for us. This whole trial, this whole situation, is not meant to say, oh, poor Jesus. He's doing, going through all of this for us. His first coming, this, this time that he's on the earth, right here in Mark's gospel, is all about taking judgment. That's what it's all about. He came into the world to bear the judgment of God for us through the injustice of men. He wasn't going to come into the world, a sin-cursed world with rebels, and be treated justly. He's the very thing that is opposite of everything in God's world since the curse, since the fall. So he came to take judgment. But as he says in verse 62 of chapter 14, that he will come again, seated at the right hand of power with the clouds of heaven. And at that time, he is going to give judgment to all those for whom he did not take it. He is going to give judgment at his second coming for all those who did not, he did not take it. Say, how do I know if he, if he took my judgment? You've turned from your sin. You are turning from your sin today. And you are running to him. 
and you know that you don't deserve forgiveness. And your testimony is what Ryle's testimony said. Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me, and believing in him, I have hope of heaven. So will you ask Jesus? Will you talk to Jesus today? Christian, will you go back to him and thank him for this? Will you rest your soul, no matter what its condition, in him in this today, regardless of how you feel? Will you count this to be true for you by faith? And if you're not a believer, you're not a disciple of Jesus, would you ask Jesus? Would you talk to him? He came to forgive. He came to save. He will be your Savior. What will you do with Jesus Christ? More importantly, what will Jesus Christ do with you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for a wonderful plan of redemption that boggles our minds. Thank you that in the midst of so much injustice that your son received, that he did it for us. He was, he was punished for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We thank you for this great work. Lord Jesus, we cannot say enough to you. We cannot say enough to you. We, we fail in our words to be able to express what you have done for us. We can't even begin to get our hearts and minds around it. And when we think about it, we just find ourselves swimming in a very deep pool that we can't seem to get our head above the water. So we just thank you with all of our hearts for what you have done for us. Because we acknowledge that without you, we are completely wide open to the wrath of God. And justly so. We deserve it. We have wilted time and time again. We've refused to be identified with Jesus Christ. At some point in all of our lives, some of us may still be there, but at some point in all of our lives, we, have ref we would rather be identified with our family or our country or ourselves rather than be identified with Jesus Christ. We would rather be identified with anything but Jesus. And that is great, great wickedness. Because to be identified with Jesus is to be identified with you. So thank you for forgiving. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the cross. Please move within us today to bring us to a point of decisive, convictional obedience and trust in him for as long as we live because he's worthy of nothing less. Amen.